Hello, and welcome to another episode of Broadway and Other Kiwi Dreams, a podcast in which I, James Shearer, talk to inspiring and creative people in and around the New Zealand theatre industry and find out how they got that way. Today, I'm joined by Luke DeSoma. Since his childhood, Luke has always had a profound interest in music and theatre. Whether it's playing the flute as a young lad or inspiring people at his theatre school more recently, his passion for the arts is unmistakable. Luke joins the podcast to talk about his profound experience at Tisch School of the Arts in New York City. We find out the light bulb moment that kickstarted the process of creating a rock musical about NZ icon Kate Shepard. And of course, Luke details the series of events that led to some of the biggest names on Broadway coming to Christchurch to teach at Luke's theatre school, Symptus. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, enjoy a conversation with Luke on Broadway and other Kiwi dreams. Hey Luke, how's it going? I'm um, really good, James. Thanks for having me on your uh, on your podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Of course. How's old mate COVID treating you? No, it's fine, man. I mean, it's a funny time for everybody, obviously, disorientating and hugely unsettling, and I think it it's particularly weird for artists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I was joking to my friend the other day that as a writer, you sort of always professionally self-isolating. So this is cool. not a huge shift <laughs> in some respects. Yeah, totally. But it's certainly, you know, I'm a relatively social creature and a bit of an extrovert by nature. So it certainly has some challenges. But, you know, honestly, I'm doing pretty well. Um, and I'm healthy and safe and I uh, have a roof over my head, which is more than can be said for a lot of people. So all things considered, I'm pretty good, you know. Cool. Um, so jumping into the theatre part of this podcast. Of course. Obviously, musical theatre is a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. First of all, I was wondering if you have a favourite musical. I, I thought you might ask me this, and it's sort of like picking between a favourite child uh, in some respects. Totally. It's funny, as a composer, I tend to make a distinction between a favourite score and a favourite show, you know? Sure. For example, I think West Side Story was one of the first musicals that I listened to uh, as a teenager that I thought this is super exciting. And even as a, you know, now professional composer, I think we said story is, in my opinion, the best score ever written for a musical. And I saw it when I was in New York and I think the dancing is incredible and the it's a great musical, but although it's well constructed, I didn't find the book to be as incredibly moving as other shows. So I, West Side Story for me has a special part from a music and a dance point of view. But I think it depends on the on the week. I mean, I was really lucky. I studied and lived in New York for a couple of years and I've been back a couple of times and I tend to admire different things about different shows. I've got a soft spot for the classics. I think things like My Fair Lady and Gypsy are, you know, incredibly well-written perfect musicals from a structural point of view. Um, I love South Pacific uh, as well, but then I'm a really big fan of the modern stuff. I worked on Hedwig uh, and the Angry Inch last year, and I love that show. I love Fun Home. I love Next to Normal. So, you know, it really depends on the day and what I'm in the mood for. But I think things with just a really good story that are really well written and really well constructed are the shows that I tend to be more interested in, I think. Actually, but I didn't mention one. If If you actually did have it into my head and said, what is your favorite musical of all time? I'd probably say Sweeney Todd. Sure. From a score, book, text point of view, it's a masterpiece in my view. Yeah. I was listening to you talk on, it might have been Garden of Sound when I was doing my research. Oh, yeah. And you said that you saw Joseph when you were a teenager. Yeah. And that was kind of where you realized that this is what you kind of wanted to do. Yeah, I saw Joseph when I was about... I want to say 15 in the town hall in Christchurch, James Hay Theatre. I believe it was Doug Carmore's production. Richard Merritt was conducting and a couple of people who I went on to work with were in that show. Lee Wilson and I think Jason Rikers was in it. You know, two regular Christchurch performers. And I think for me, I remember watching um, Richard in the Pit. Uh, Just for those of you who don't know, Richard's uh, another music director in Christchurch and ran NASDA for a long time. And I remember watching Richard in the Pit wearing a brightly colored waistcoat thinking, that looked pretty cool. I remember it really vividly because it was the combination of things that I liked. I loved the lighting and the costumes and the music and the acting and the singing. It was all the things combined. And I think the thing that makes music theater unique is that it's an incredibly combined integrated art form and that all the different elements should speak to each other and that music theatre mm. works the best when all the things are in sync. So I think for me, watching all the different elements come together, you know, it was a, you know, obviously 
Tiener colours in the title uh, and colours an important theme of that show, but just seeing the colour on stage and the colour coming out of the pit was a moment for me where I thought, this is really fun, and I thought, I want to be involved in that. Uh, and I didn't yet really understand how. I mean, I was a musician in high school at the time, and I remember thinking maybe the music side of musical theatre is what I want to get into. So that was a little bit of a, a flame for me. I remember that production really vividly. Sure. Jumping back a bit. Yeah. You were very musical as a kid, weren't you? I mean, I was sort of averagely musical. I certainly, you know, there's no false modesty here. I certainly wasn't a wunderkind. I certainly wasn't playing Beethoven at four or anything like that. But I... I learned the flute originally. It was my first instrument uh, when I was about seven or eight. So I started playing the flute. And then I had the odd piano lesson and then picked up saxophone at high school. I went to Cashmere High School in Christchurch, which for me was an incredible school. Um, for those people who don't, who aren't in Christchurch listening, that's a state, you know, co-ed school in Christchurch. And it was a really terrific environment. I All of my best friends were musical and I did a lot of stuff played saxophone, played flute, you know, did a wee bit of piano, but didn't really take piano seriously until a little bit later. You know, I was one of those kids that had a different musical group every lunchtime <laughs> and then a student council meeting before school and, you know, production after school. I was one of those. I was basically a character from Glee or Sex Education. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, and I really learned on the job and I was really lucky that I sort of realized halfway through high school that I wasn't, I didn't want to perform as much, although conducting is obviously a form of performing, but I was drawn to composition and conducting and other aspects of music. I conducted the school jazz band in year 12 and my orchestra conductor let me conduct the orchestra in year 13. And, you know, oh. me and my friend put on this Broadway review show uh, in our last year of high school, which was terrible and shambolic and probably illegal, <laughs> but um, a really great training ground in terms of just the joy of putting stuff on and beginning to, beginning to understand what it meant to be a leader and running a group mm. of people. Uh, and I think that high school for the right students can be a really great opportunity for people like me. And it was. I loved high school. A lot of people have a terrible time, but cool. you know, I had a great time doing theater sports and productions and music and all sorts of things. Was there anything else that you were kind of drawn to or was it just this? Yeah, I always loved sport as well. Mm -hmm. I was a very bad but very enthusiastic cricketer. My dad's a sports uh, journalist and works in the sport industry, so I'm always very grateful for the fact that my parents were the perfect amount of supportive in everything that me and my brothers did. Every show they came to watch, you know, dad would come watch me play cricket and, um, you know, they would both come to gigs and performances and things, but were never too supportive. They were never like, you know, there with a video camera for eight times during a season. They were never that intense, but they were also, yeah, totally. you know, that perfect amount of supportive. And, you know, I feel very lucky that I grew up in the generation that I grew up in, to be honest, because, you know, I've got a lot of friends, parents who were super talented in many different respects, but it wasn't necessarily acceptable to necessarily pursue an artistic life or pursue artistic goals when, when my parents' mm. generation were growing up. I think it was sort of more, yeah. I don't know, not frowned upon, but realism was a more valued social trait. So in my generation, you know, both my parents are journalists, interestingly, which I think, um, even though I'm not a journalist, I still consider myself a storyteller. And my dad would think that was pretty wanky if he heard, if he hears this. But, <laughs> but I think there is a similarity in using words to tell a story. And I think mm. I was drawn to that. So, you know, at high school, I did sport, I played tennis, I was in the debating team, I played chess, <laughs> like, I was really big on the extracurricular activities at high school. But as I got older, the music and particularly theatre you know, I think that's why I became a musical theatre artist, actually, was that the theatre became just as interesting to me as music. And they became a sort mm. of dual passion. I was involved in stage challenge. You know, even debating I saw as a form of theatre. Like, it was performance. You know, you were trying to yeah. persuade people of, of something, which I think is the same thing that we do in musical theatre. So I really do look back on that time with a lot of fondness because I think those whole different myriad of, you know, I did theatre sports at high school and I often use, mm -hmm. you know, theatre sports techniques and basics of improv in my teaching of musical theatre, you know, here in Melbourne. You know, it's funny, it all seeps in, it all has a role to play somehow. Yeah. Have you thought about if there's a moment that you can sort of point to and say that's kind of where my career started? No, I'll tell you a tiny wee story. I was doing this shambolic terrible illegal review show with my friend at high school and my music teacher watched me conducting it 
And so I did the arrangements and music directed and put the band together. And my friend Ali did the costumes and the choreography. And we did it as a project because there was no, there was no production that year because the teachers union was fighting with the government at the time. And part of the protest was that the teachers weren't going to do any extracurricular activities. So there was no production mm-hmm. that year. So to make up for that, me and my friend Ali put on this production And I remember my teacher watching me conducting it, and he said to me afterwards, you know, if you want to do this, you can do this. Uh, I think that you're capable of making this part of your life. I think you should pursue this if you want to do this. Cool. And, you know, know, now that I'm a a teacher myself and I, you know, run Simtis and, you know, work at a university uh, here in Australia, that it's amazing what one comment a teacher can make can really you know, light something in you. And I think that Mr. Thin, his name was, Gary Thin, you know, made this observation that I could do it. And I was sort of thinking, yeah, that's something I'll do. So I did my music degree at Canterbury. And then to answer your question about when my sort of quote unquote career started, I think that mm-hmm. my time at the University of Canterbury really was when this began seriously for me. There's a, you know, great group called MUSOC, the Musical Theatre Society, who do shows. And I was MUSOC president for a while. And I wrote a couple of original musicals and I music directed here and Little Shop. And I remember really vividly doing Little Shop with my friend Pete and the same Ali who <laughs> I'm godfather to Ali's child, by the way, which is why Ali's um, <laughs> features in these stories. But the same Ali who I did the illegal, shambolic, terrible review show with. Right. And Ali was Audrey and my mates are playing in the band. And I remember going for a drive, I don't know, the next day with a friend and saying to him, I think this is what I want to do. Even at, you know, an amateur student level, I was already taking mm. it pretty seriously. <laughs> you know, yeah. most people do MUSOP to sort of get drunk and get laid and do shows. I was sort of there to like, you know, begin my amateur theater career. It was all very earnest in hindsight, but I definitely took it quite seriously. And I think that's when I sort of caught the bug. At the same time that I was falling in love with music theatre at MUSOC, I was doing music at Canterbury and I was doing sort of serious classical music, which I found less interesting, even though in hindsight, I'm super grateful for the techniques that I learned. And it was a really great education. But at the time, I was more drawn to the musical theatre world. Then I did my honours in Wellington and at the New Zealand School of Music. And I remember doing more classical music, but really missing theatre. Sure. So I think in some respects, my university time gave me the technique and the compositional conducting, you know, academic education in the classroom. But then the real passion for it was ignited you know, at the university shows. Hmm. You said before that you aren't really drawn to the performing side of things. If you were to be drawn to the performing side, what would be a role that you would really want to play? That's a really good question. When I'm singing, like in my life, (laughs) whether if I'm teaching or I'm just jamming, I tend to sit in the tenor sort of range. So uh, even though I'm a very unlikely casting as Tony for West Side Story, I would love to sing Tony for West Side Story. Yeah. Or Judas <laughs> from <laughs> Superstar. I can even smash out a pretty decent waving through a window from Jeff and Hanson if I've had a couple of drinks. It's not particularly um, refined singing, but it's very enthusiastic and quite loud. But the irony is I can't actually hit the low notes in waving, waving through a window. I think people don't realize how low that score goes. Like we think of yeah, man. Evan as a high role, but when he gets into that, there's a little bridge in waving through a window, which is actually quite low. Platt's got this ridiculous range. Yeah, when you're falling through the forest, that, that whole bit. Yeah, when you're falling. I can't. <laughs> it's funny, I sang, <laughs> this is super embarrassing, but I sang Music of the Night. Mm-hmm. in year 13 uh, in the male singing competition. And I right. actually went full, this is a true story, I went full cape, hat, half mask, the whole <laughs> phantom bizzo uh, and sang Music of the Night. And I, for the life of me, have never hit that A flat. Um, you mm-hmm. know, night time. I sort of give it that mm-hmm. speech singy thing. Yeah. Um, unless I've had a couple of whiskeys and a cigar the night before, then I can maybe squeak out a low A flat. But, you know, I nailed the top A flat at the end of the song. Nice. Certainly not a baritone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, I do actually do love singing in a weird, in a weird way. And I, write silly songs for Instagram sometimes that I sing by myself, but I was never really going to ever going to be a performer. I was always drawn to the uh, behind the scenes stuff, but at the same time, you know, conducting is a form of performance, you Mm -hmm. know, you, when you're on the podium or in the pit, you're 
giving energy and you know your body language is hugely important to what happens yeah so i think in some respects when i'm conducting i i am performing and i do love the do love the mm. limelight <laughs> yeah. i'm not gonna lie you get a bow at the end yeah totally and even teachers <laughs> are from performance you know you're you know trying to inspire people and you're trying to elicit a reaction from a crowd which is the mm. same as performing so even though i was never cut out to be a performer there's a reason i'm drawn to the theater i think cool Moving on to your study, you said before that you were at UC studying music. Yes. I did my three years at Canterbury and then I did a year in Wellington. What year was that? Oh my gosh, 2006. 2006, I went to Wellington and I did an honours year. And I did conducting and composition and that was my first class honours year. So then that kind of leads into your New York journey. Yes. I was at home and my mum pointed out this article in the paper where a New Zealander from Tauranga had got into this music theatre school in New York, Rochelle Bright, her name is, and she got into this music theatre writing school in uh, New York, and my mum said, you could do that, and I was like, no, I don't think I can do that, but I, you know, researched it, and I applied, so it was New York University, so I applied to this school, and my grandma said to me, if you get accepted, then I'll pay for your flight to go and be interviewed, and I was like, that's amazing, but the money's safe, you're fine, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to get in, because I, you know, thousands of people apply for the school, so I thought, yeah. and it, it's still hundreds, I mean, it, you know, but it's a very niche thing, music mm. theatre composition, uh, as yeah. you can imagine. So I applied and got accepted, and it was, you know, very surprising, and I had to ring my grandma and say, you know that offer of <laughs> me going to New York, uh, we need to go to the travel agent. So, yeah. you know, grandma bought me a ticket. I'm slightly getting ahead of myself. I got shortlisted first. So the flight was to go and be interviewed. And I'm a really big believer in showing up for things professionally, you know, to quote Hamilton and being in the room where things happen, you know, like mm -hmm. showing up to rehearsals and opening nights and masterclasses and, you know, just being everywhere, I think is a really important thing. And I thought that if I got shortlisted, and I'm lucky that I had a grandmother that could pay for me to go. Like, not everyone's that privileged, obviously. But that if I got shortlisted and then turned up from New Zealand, then I'm sending a relatively serious message that I'm not screwing around. So did the applicants weekend, had an interview. We had to write a song with someone in the class because the whole point of the program was it's very collaborative. Mm. And they wanted to see how you were in a collaborative environment. You know, I got accepted for the fall of 2007, but I had to raise the, you know, gross domestic product of Invercargill to go um, because it was, you know, that expensive. So I had to apply to scholarships and that included the Fulbright scholarship, which meant I couldn't go in 2007. So I ended up mm -hmm. going in 2008. So I was right. lucky that they let me defer. And then I was in New York from 2008 to, you know, 2010. You've, you've said that that was such a profound experience in your career. Why was it so profound? I think there are a couple of things. I think studying music theatre in New York is like studying, I don't know, studying politics in Washington, D.C. or studying German history in Berlin, you know, <laughs> like to be in that city. And I was really lucky. You know, I saw the original production of Nick Snormore, the original production of In the Heights. I saw, mm -hmm. you know, the South Pacific I mentioned previously. I saw some incredible theater that got me so inspired about the industry so on one hand it was just the nature of being in new york but on the other hand it was obviously the education and i remember being pretty green when i got to nyu like i thought i was a sort of semi big shot where i was from and then i got to yeah. nyu and thought you know holy hell i don't really know anything about music theater or about yeah. the craft of it i was very green for the first six months i felt really out of my depth you know, from a compositional standpoint. It's only only by sort of swimming in the deep end do you learn how to swim properly. And luckily I had incredible teachers and great classmates and stuff. And you just get better and you and you keep working. And you know, NYU, it's an incredibly rigorous demanding course. So you're basically writing a song a week and you just have to get in the habit of writing. You start to figure out your voice and, and what you want to say. So from that point of view, both from a cultural point of view and from an educational point of view, it was a pretty miraculous time. Even though I was working professionally before I went to New York, I don't really think of my quote unquote career pre-New York. I th really think about when I came back after New York, that, that's when my sort of career started. Yeah. Before we move on to your post-tish life you've learned some instruments you, you mentioned flute uh, saxophone bit of piano is there any instrument that you still want to have a go at 
That's a good question. The short answer is no. I mean, I love the cello as an instrument, but I would, there's something about an old dog learning new tricks at my age. And I think for me, I'm just always trying to just play as much piano as I can. And even mm. though I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a professional pianist, I can play my own stuff. And I, and I think I just want to keep playing piano and keep getting better at that. So that's sort of, if I'm going to put any energy into development, it's going to be me playing as much piano as possible. But I'm lucky sure. I've been teaching here in Australia for the last. 18 months and playing quite a bit of piano through that, which has been really fun. And I'm enjoying getting better at that. I mean, I'm basically a self-taught pianist. I have had a couple of lessons, but I didn't learn. It's interesting. I didn't learn piano to the same extent that I learned saxophone and flute. So, which is why really I consider myself a writer who occasionally music directs than someone mm. who is a music director who sometimes writes. I think of myself as a composer first. You know, even though I do play my own stuff, sometimes I'm much happier when someone else is playing what I've written. <laughs> so mm. to answer your question, I do love certain instruments, the cello being one. I think I'll put all my energy into playing the keyboard and the piano, I think. Mm -hmm. Now moving on to, quote unquote, the start of your career. Yes. <laughs> this will probably jump around a bit because you've done so much. So you came back from Tish in 2010, is that right? Yeah, about June 2010, yeah. So what was your first project when you got back? My first project was Sweeney Todd with Showbiz, Christchurch. Mm -hmm. I was music director. Juliet Reynolds Midgley played Mrs. Lovett. Michael Bailey played Sweeney and Reveal Atlas played The Judge. Yeah, it was a really great score, a huge project to come back to. Yeah, we were initially delayed by the first earthquake. I believe we were supposed to be on in September, but we weren't because of the first earthquake. And then we came back in October or November. We were in between the first, you know, the baby earthquake and the big earthquake. We were sort of in between those things. So that was hmm. my first project. And then I was doing spam a lot at the time of the big earthquake. So I came back to a couple of Showbiz Crusher shows. I had some Crusher Symphony conducting work. I was doing stuff at the court theatre. I was mm -hmm. writing schools for plays and various bits and bobs. So I sort of came back after NYU and took quite a bit of work. And then, of course, the earthquake happened and all of that disappeared, except for the youth orchestra, which I was conducting. So I felt mm -hmm. as though I was sort of cursed. Sweeney got delayed. Spamalot got delayed. Uh, we eventually did Spamalot um, later on once the Isaac Theatre Royal reopened. Yeah, so like a lot of people, post-earthquake, it was a very uncertain time. But a couple of things came out of the earthquake. One was that I was conducting the Christchurch Youth Orchestra. My first rehearsal ever as the new conductor of the CYO was the week before the earthquake. So that would have been right. February the 15th was our first rehearsal. And then Youth Orchestra was on a Tuesday night, which was Tuesday the 22nd. So mm -hmm. obviously Youth Orchestra was cancelled that night, but we started back the week after. Right. And my brother was playing trombone uh, in the youth orchestra at that time and everything else I had had sort of overnight like so many different artists in Christchurch had disappeared you know all my mm. court theatre work showbiz work everything had vanished I was 25 at the time you know I'd only really been back from New York sort of six months and I thought is this my time to you know go and do my Europe backpacking you know is this my time sure. to go and do that is this the universe telling me to sod off and go and do that thing my brother's very low-key very chill dude he probably wouldn't remember this but i remember saying to him you know maybe this is my time to sod off and go and travel and he said but you made a commitment to the youth orchestra and it was a very casual cool. comment but actually yeah. really resonated with me of i had made a commitment it wasn't the only reason i stayed but it was part of why i stayed such a cliche to say but out of the devastation of the earthquake came this great sense of hope and optimism around collaboration and community and making music and in a weird way the pops choir that i started which is now called the vocal collective the youth orchestra i applied to a grant to creative new zealand to write a musical which turned out to be that bloody woman i started the music theater summer school after that so it's actually in a weird way christchurch was where i really began to find my groove. And I think it's an odd thing to say, but a lot of my projects are really built around the idea of community. I'm really big on community, whether it be music theatre or music or whatever, but the importance of theatre and art to bring people together. As wanky as that sounds, I'm a really big believer in that. And I actually think that if New York was my professional education, Christchurch became my sort of personal education and it gave me a sense of purpose around why we do what we do. And I think that collaboration is such a crucial part of 
what we do and whether it was youth orchestra or choir or writing musicals, I think that the aftermath of the earthquake solidified for me the importance of collaborating. You know, even though we wouldn't necessarily think of Christchurch as a place for, you know, artistic discovery. Remember, I just come back from New York, so New York was sort of this massively inspiring place. And then I came back to Christchurch to work and I deliberately came home. It was a a conscious decision. I wasn't deported. I wanted to come home. Yeah. But at the same time, post-Quake Christchurch was the chance where I really think I began to find my purpose and voice as an artistic person, I think. Definitely. You mentioned That Bloody Woman, which for people that don't know is a musical about Kate Shepard that you wrote with Greg Cooper. Yeah. What was the sort of impetus for that project? Was there a thing that happened that sort of kicked that project off? Yeah, there were a couple of things. I saw a musical called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson when I was in New York. And I have to say the title is sort of a coincidence. Greg actually was the one who came up with That Bloody Woman as a title. But for a long time, the show was called The Suffragettes, which A, is a bad title and B, is (laughs) historically inaccurate because they were suffragists in New Zealand. Um, They were suffragettes in the UK. But we learnt that as we you know, started our research journey. I remember seeing Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson at the Public Theatre in New York. And for those who don't know the show, it's a emo rock musical about Andrew Jackson, who was the seventh president of the United States. And he was a pretty controversial figure. He was actually, I don't mean to get political on your podcast, James, but he was sort of a Trump before Trump. He was a very divisive, nationalistic, populist, anti-immigrant president, had some really controversial decisions around Native Americans. When I say controversial, I mean horrific. This is 2008 in uh, America, and this was the beginning of the sort of Tea Party populism. So this was sort of Sarah Palin and Tea Party and the reaction against Obama, which has now morphed into what Trump became. And Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson sort of spoke and was very satirical and sort of took the piss out of that. So I saw that show. And even though I didn't love all of it, there was something about the combination of history and politics and rock music that really spoke to me. I became a real political dork when I was in America. I began to really follow politics really closely. And so a kind of historical rock musical really appealed to me. And I remember being on a bus from Philadelphia to New York. It was like a lightning bolt. I can't even describe it to you. It was like Mm -hmm. a, a flash of inspiration around, I loved that idea. What would that look like in a New Zealand context? And the idea of the suffrage movement in New Zealand, New Zealand being the first country where women run the right to vote, it felt like a really great thing to write a rock musical about. I remember going to the bathroom and like, and this is going to sound super pathetic, but going to the bathroom and looking myself in the mirror and being like, you are onto something. I haven't admitted that on an interview before, but I remember really vividly going, this idea is really fucking good. Sometimes when you're writing a musical, there's the idea and then there's the execution. I knew Mm. that the idea was good. (laughs) I knew that if we executed it and I found the right collaborator, then I'd get it right. So I came home, emailed Greg, who I'd only really met a couple of times in the foyer of the court theater, but I knew that Greg had a really irreverent writing style. And I really consciously wanted someone who wasn't necessarily a music theater geek. Greg loves musicals, but he's not a music theater dork in his bones. He's a theater guy, a writer, an actor, an improviser, and his background was in comedy. And I'd seen a couple of things he'd written, the, you know, complete history of New Zealand abridged. And he had this real knack for making history accessible and punky and fun and light and i thought that's what this needs to be i emailed greg out of the blog and said hi we've never really met properly but i've got this idea and then he and i met for a drink at the old ducks deluxe by the art center when you know this is pre-earthquake and we sort of started this journey of writing the show but if i can go back a half a second when i was in new york i remember having a similar light bulb moment although it was less of a ding and more of a a fade that yeah that i wanted to write New Zealand musicals. Mm. Not necessarily exclusively that I didn't want to only write stories about New Zealand, but that I was in a very international class at Tisch. There were about nearly half of us who had come from other countries. And I remember hearing the different voices in the class from different parts of the world and being really inspired by that and going, I don't want to just become another American music theater writer writing another song cycle about being stuck in my apartment. I'm a New Zealander. And part of what made NYU really good is they were very insistent about finding your own voice as a writer and about being true to yourself. And what made me different was that I was from New Zealand. And I always think that when you live overseas in a big city overseas, especially New York or London, that being a Kiwi gives you a real point of difference. People like 
New Zealanders by and large, but they're not like threatened by us. So we're sort of exotic, mm. but we're not terrifying. <laughs> so yeah. I think that being a Kiwi was sort of what made me stand out at NYU, but also what I realized was my point of difference. And, you know, I think it's fair to say there haven't been a whole lot of really popular New Zealand musicals that have been written. And I thought, look, I can be someone who can go home and, you know, take the skills that I learned to NYU and, you know, find New Zealand subjects. So I think it was a combination of realizing what made me different, which was I was a Kiwi music theater writer, and then having this, you know, lightning bolt about Kate Shepard. That was the beginning of the of the Bloody Woman journey. And then finding Greg and then applying to the Arts Council for funding. And then the journey began. Yeah. Fast forward like four years and that Bloody Woman opens along with two other musicals that you wrote, which were The Invisibles with Dan Bain and Mrs. McGinty and that bizarre plant. Yeah, so they're really interesting projects. So Mrs. McGinty was a kids' musical. It was a children's book by Gavin Bishop, who was a Christchurch-based author. And it's a really beautiful book about an old lady who makes friends with the kids next door. That was sort of my first professional piece of original music theatre. And then I wrote The Invisibles, which was a high school musical that Dan Bain and I wrote together, which St. Margaret's College commissioned. And that was sort of my first full-length musical that I'd written. And that was when I began to sort of discover my love of teaching young people. And that was a really fun project to sort of work with the students and develop that show. So that was really fun. And those were two things that sort of, I think, in some ways began to lead to Buddy Woman from a development standpoint. Musicals are really, really really fucking hard to write. Like good mm-hmm. musicals are really hard. There are so many different elements to bring together and the dramaturgy of a musical is really specific. Good musicals take a long time to develop. So I think in a weird way, doing Mrs. McGinty and doing The Invisibles, I began to develop the muscles of developing new work and writing 40 songs and discarding 25 of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And working with actors and getting things in the right key and, you know, making sure that the text and the book are doing the right work to just justify the songs and how the lyrics function, all that sort of stuff. So it also just the skill of collaboration and the skill of working with a director. You know, I began to sort of practice those skills, which, you know, came to fruition when Bloody Woman opened, which I think was 2015 at the Christchurch Arts Festival. Yeah. All of those three sort of happened one after the other, eh, in that year. You know, you're right, James. They all happened sort of at the same time because I came back from New York you know, in 2010 and then started freelancing and conducting and working and then these ideas gradually happened and then they all sort of bottlenecked at the same time. So that was a really inspiring sort of year or 18 months of developing new work and that's when I really got the bug of I want to develop new projects. That's where that began to really come into focus. Speaking of new projects, just before that you started Simtus, which for those that don't know is the Christchurch International Musical Theatre Summer Singing School. Actually, you can take out one of those S's, Music Theatre Summer School. It's already long enough. We don't need three S's. No, we don't need three S's. So yeah, we did the first Simtus in 2014, which was really exciting. Yeah, and jumping forward to now, you've had the likes of Sutton Foster, Jonathan Groff, Peter Flynn... And of course, Andrea Burns, who kind of kicked all those contacts off. She was the OG, yeah. How did you meet Andrea? It's a really good question. So at Tisch, when you do your master's, you write a thesis musical at the end of your two years. And at the end of that year, it gets a reading. And me and my collaborator, Emily, wrote a musical about a family, and Andrea Burns played the mum, which, you know, in hindsight, was ludicrous. A guy called Alex Lackamore, was my musical director. You know, he went on to music direct in the Heights, Hamilton. Yep. He's won multi-Tonys and Grammys, and he did the music for Greatest Showman. Like, yep. he's, a you know, maybe the most prolific music director in the world. And here he was playing my score, you wow. know, which was so unbelievably, you know, surreal. And I remember going to his apartment overlooking Central Park, and he was playing my score, and it was like an out-of-body experience. It was mm, so totally. crazy to be from... You know, to be from Christchurch, New Zealand, and to be in this guy's apartment. And he was so friendly and lovely and generous. And the other thing I learned about in that project, working with the likes of, I say working with, <laughs> watching, you know, <laughs> Andrea and Alex work, was how kind and generous they were. And I kind of had this moment of, even though I'm never going to be nearly as famous as Alex Lacamoire or Andrea Burns, if I ever have any level of success in my life, I always want to be that kind and always want to be that generous mm. and never want to turn into an asshole. Because if it's good enough for those people to be kind, it's good enough for me to be kind. So that was totally. a real lesson in generosity. Andrea sang The Mum, 
um, a guy called Andy Carl played the dad who Andy Carl went on to do the lead in Groundhog Day. He was yeah. the original UPS guy in Legally Blonde. He was in Rocky, the musical. So he's a really terrific Broadway actor. So I had Alex and Andrea and, and Andy singing my stuff, which was incredible. Wow. So that was great. And Andrea and I, you know, literally spent four days together. I didn't know her really. You know, I went to see In the Heights. I took my dad to see In the Heights. So, you know, I wanted to show my respect for what she'd done. And I wanted to thank her in my own way for doing our reading. And then three years later, I was in Christchurch. And I'll be a wee bit honest with you, James. I had the sense that I wanted to pass on what I had learned in New York. And I don't necessarily mean the actual lessons, but the sort of the bigger inspiration of music theatre. And I had developed some techniques and some opinions about how I think music theatre should be taught and performed. And I had some contacts and some ideas that I wanted to capitalise on. And so I started Simtus. I definitely had the word international in there because I had delusions of grandeur that I did want it to become an international thing. But I literally emailed Andrea, this was in 2013, so three years after we had met. And remembering we'd only met for four days. We literally Mm. worked together for four days three years ago. So I emailed her with a subject line saying, do you want to come to New Zealand? And I said, look, you probably don't remember me. I'm that little hobbit from New Zealand who you performed his thesis musical. I'm starting the school in New Zealand. I would love you to come and teach. And she wrote back saying, yeah, I'm in. Like literally that brief. Amazing. And then we had a couple of months of going back and forth about timing and her family and how she was going to get time off from her projects and flights mm. and all that kind of stuff. And then she turned up in 2014. So the first wow. symptoms in 2014, we had an incredibly well-respected, admired Broadway actress, you know, the original Daniela and on the Heights, done, I think at that point, seven or eight Broadway shows, film, TV work, you know, really terrific and really highly regarded Broadway actor. And I think Andrea just gave us a bit of credibility. And at the same school, you know, we had the wonderful Mark Dorrell, who's a, you know, former West End music director who lives in Wellington. And then I had some Australians and some Kiwis. So I had this sort of, you know, New Zealand, Australia, America, UK teaching faculty, which was really unique. I really wanted to give people from Christchurch the chance to work with international guests, you know, Broadway, West End. And I think Mark and Andrea in particular raised the bar. We only went for a week that first symptoms and, you know, we had, I think, about 60 high school students and about 25 emerging professionals. And Andrea and I went to Akaroa the day after, which was the only bit of New Zealand she got to see because we were too busy teaching all week. And she said to me over fish and chips, I really want to help you build this. She said, I think you're onto something really exciting. I don't know what your plans are, but I've got lots of friends and connections and my husband's a director and I think I can help you build this. And I was like, this is incredible. And so she went back to New York and then we kept in touch. And I have to say that that day that we were in Akaroa, we became really good friends. And I think she really respected what I was trying to do. And then so between 2014 and 2016, we began to work out what the hell we were doing and we got more Mm. help and we eventually formed a charitable trust and people like Tanya McHugh and Jenny Thorner came on board and we got a really big team of people to help us put it on. One of the things about Andrea was that Andrea led to other people. So I remember going to New York in 2015 on a holiday, but also, you know, to have dinner with Andrea and to properly meet Peter, her husband, who's a terrific director. And then Peter came in 2016 and he's been back every since. since. Peter yeah. is just one of the most phenomenal artistic human beings I've ever met. To call them a power couple is sort of the wrong word. They're just like a generosity couple, Peter and Andrea. You know, they're just a really incredibly gifted, skillful, generous talented but very heartfelt committed people and Andrea you know had a gut feeling that Peter would really fit in and both of them have become really important mentors to me in terms of education and I often text Peter with questions about teaching and he's incredibly helpful to me so on that trip in 2015 I'm about to shamelessly name drop here James so I'm happy to get the vacuum cleaner out so I can vacuum up the names I drop on the floor (laughs) remember meeting Andrea for dinner in New York and you know, I said, I'd love you to come back. And she said, well, let's bring someone I know. Who do you want? And I said, well, let's let's really go to town. Let's try and find someone who's, you know, maybe one of Tony or what can we do? She's like, well, who do you want? And I said, well, I think someone like Sutton Foster would be perfect. Like really well known, like famous music theater star. Someone like Sutton Foster. Yeah, someone like Sutton Foster. Like down to, <laughs> but because I'd done my research and I knew that we were going to have this conversation and I read that Sutton loved teaching and did a lot of masterclasses and stuff. Because the thing about Simtus is we want 
you know, the occasional shiny name to sell the thing, but actually if they're not going to be a good teacher or they're not going to be down to earth, especially in post-quake Christchurch where the road's still mudded and there's road cones on the streets and the hotels aren't necessarily as posh as the ones in New York, not every Broadway star is going to be comfortable with that environment. And so yeah. we wanted to get someone like Andrea who was prolific and successful, but also down to earth. And so Sutton for me, from what I had done in my research, was sort of the optimal person for that. It was a Monday night we had dinner. I remember it really clearly. And Andrea said, well, I took class with Sutton about 10 years ago. We're sort of friends. I can reach out to her. And I was like, that would be amazing. And I didn't know that actually about Andrea and Sutton. I didn't know that they knew each other necessarily. And so the next day I get a text from Andrea saying, you, me, Sutton, coffee, Friday, four o'clock. What is my life? Like what the <laughs> fuck is happening? I was, at, I was at a train station in New York and just wanted to scream and tell the world that I was about to meet Sutton Foster for coffee. And I couldn't because I didn't want to, you know, jinx it or whatever. Four o'clock on Friday came along. I was ridiculously early, which for anyone who knows me knows that that's unlikely. Met Sutton Foster for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And at the end of the conversation, she said, I'm in. And it was sort of, you know, that like sense of adrenaline you get when something really incredible happens that you just sort of takes over your body like i got yeah. this unbelievable surge of adrenaline that i'd just been sitting with this two-time tony award winner who was like i'm going to come to your school in christchurch and teach with you it was a really great lesson in a relationship building that if i had emailed Sutton foster's agent out of the blue and gone hi i'm from new zealand i've started a school does Ms. Foster want to come and teach with us? They would have probably ignored the email or gone, thank you very much, but she's busy. But the yeah. fact that Andrea Burns texts her and says, I did the school. It was really terrific. You'll love the guy that runs it. They really look after you. It's an amazing time. It's a beautiful country. Do you want to come? She says, yeah. <laughs> so even though the school's no different, I'm no different, she's no different, it was the pitch and the fact that it came from a source that Sutton respected that made her want to come. And that was a really, really valuable lesson for me. And as Andrea and I joke about all the time, who would have thought that in 2010 that a Broadway actress coming and reading a musical by a New Zealander at NYU would lead to Sutton Foster coming to New Zealand? Like it's mm -hmm. a crazy set of circumstances, but it's just, you know, at every stage, a good impression was made, a good relationship was built, and we were able to build on that, which I'm a really big sort of believer in. So sure enough, Sutton Foster comes to Christchurch in 2016, along with Carmel Dean, who was a Broadway music director from Perth, who went to my program. And so 2016, you know, we've got Andre Burns, Peter Flynn, Carmel, and Sutton Foster in Christchurch. And it was crazy. Like Sutton did this concert and it was phenomenal. And, you know, I'd seen Sutton and Josie Chaperone in New York, and I didn't know who she was. <laughs> that, that's a good example of how much I changed. Like, mm. I went to New York and did not know who Sutton Foster was. And then yeah. four years later, she was coming to teach at our school. And same with, you know, Andrea. Sutton was so down to earth and so lovely and so kind. And then fast forward, you know, two years later, rinse, repeat. I go to New York. I have dinner with Sutton and Andrea. And they're like, who do you want to come? And I was like, <laughs> Jonathan Groff. And they said, well, let me see what I can do. And then before you know it, Jonathan and I are having brunch on a Thursday morning. And I know this sounds very name droppy and very wanky, but it's just a lesson in A, ask for what you want. Don't mm. be afraid to be ambitious and go, no, yeah. I'd love to have Jonathan Groff come to Symptoms. Because again, I had done my research. I knew that Jonathan Groff was a really down-to-earth sort of guy. I knew that he had Sutton with friends. And I knew that he'd be a good fit. Andrea agreed he'd be a good fit. And then so 2018, Jonathan Groff comes to Christchurch. And, you know, that was more the same level of, of hype because, you know, Jonathan is sort of really famous from Glee and Frozen and, you know, Mindhunter and all of these incredibly, you know, famous film projects. And just like Andrea, Jonathan is incredibly down to earth and relaxed and, you know, very chill. And um, obviously Andrea and I have become friends, but, you know, Jonathan and I pretty frequently keep in touch and text each other from time to time. And he's just a really lovely, sweet, down-to-earth dude. Oh, hey guys. Future James here. Just uh, vacuuming up the names that Luke dropped. Oh, wait. Uh, while I have you here, uh, I just want to make a request. So obviously me sharing on my avenues can only really do so much. So especially in this early stages of this podcast, I rely on word of mouth to grow. So if you're enjoying this episode and 
you know of someone else who might enjoy it too, pause the episode right now and send them a link. I think it would be really cool to create a community around this podcast and see where it takes us. Alrighty, let's get back to the podcast. Oh, there's Sutton. Yeah, we've been really, really lucky with the people we've had, but it all started with Andrea, and it all started with an email. And I would hasten to add that the other tutors that we get are terrific as well. So we've had really fantastic tutors from New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. But obviously the Broadway ones are the ones that get the attention because they're the people that we have listened to on cast recordings. So to hear Andrea sing songs from In the Heights and songs from New World and to hear Jonathan Groff sing You'll Be Back from Hamilton and hear Sutton sing Astonishing from Little Woman, you know, those yeah. are pretty amazing experiences. So honestly, Simdus is such a massive thing that we've created and it's really special and it's, you know, only two weeks every two years. But I think that for all of us, not for only for the students, I know for the teachers who do it and for me, we always come out of it really inspired. And it's a really amazing opportunity to meet these people and to realize actually that even though you might be Joshua Henry or Jonathan Groff or Sutton Foster or Andrea Burns, we're all music theater artists who are trying to tell stories. And even though they are far more accomplished and successful than, than we are, that actually we're all in the same boat. And I think that that's that's the really important lesson. You know, to be honest, we're really picky about who comes because they have to get that. You know, Joshua Henry was playing guitar to the high school students and singing to them and warming up with them and hanging out with them in the foyer before school started each day. I go back to the thing about community, James. It's, that's the important thing for me, that the community engagement is a really important part of Synthesis. Definitely. And I think it is just all about being nice and just putting yourself out there. Yeah, it's just so interesting. You never know who you're going to meet. Andrade tells this great story about going to a music theatre camp in America called Frenchwoods, and she was there with a young composer called Jason Robert Brown, right? And they met at Frenchwoods, and then Andrea went on to sing early demos of last five years, and she was in the original Castle Songs for New World, and she played Lucille and Parade and the National Tour. So she became buddies with this music theatre geek at summer camp, who then went on to become one of the most prolific music theatre composers of all time. I always remember that because you never know who you're standing next to, working for, working with. But I just think that that thing about generosity is so important. Definitely. Coming towards the end. So you've written a bunch of New Zealand musicals, a lot of which were very successful. And I saw this quote that you wrote in an article somewhere that I wanted to steal because I just think it's an incredible quote. It goes like this. Take it away. We like success, but not too much. We like a warm evening, but not too hot. We like people to be kind, but please don't get too intense. We're fine, we're sweet, she'll be right, yeah nah, doesn't really sing, eh bro? But big-heartedness sings, Fano sings, the rituals, traditions, and history in our various cultures sing, our connection to the earth sings. I just wanted to steal that quote and put it in. <laughs> no, I, thank you for bringing that up. That was a part of a, a larger article I wrote about my thoughts about the New Zealand Music Theatre voice. And part of what that was getting at is that I have this theory that American musicals are aspirational and that British or European musicals are desperational. You think about Matilda, Oliver, they tend to be sort of grimy stories about orphans and American musicals tend to be stories about how fantastic America is, essentially. For me, I, for a while, tried to work out how New Zealand fitted in that paradigm because New Zealand is a really interesting cultural mashup of the UK and America. We're a British colony. A lot of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents came here from the United Kingdom and from Europe. Mm -hmm. And yet we're exposed to so much American culture that we're a sort of hybrid society. And our musical theater is obviously predominantly an American diet in terms of the shows that we listen to. So I was trying to work out the New Zealand way in because I've always thought that, as that quote alludes to, that for music theatre to sing, you need characters who are on the brink, characters who are sort of heightened and extreme. And New Zealanders are not particularly heightened. We're relatively chilled out and relatively relaxed. A lot of the Kiwis aren't passionate, but there's a certain drive and ambition that a lot of Kiwis are sort of cynical about, I think, to be honest. And a lot of characters in musicals are either really desperate or really aspirational. That being said, I do think there are stories that we can tell. And I think part of it is finding the right subject material. And for me, I'd say a couple of things. Musicals are often about community. And I think that New Zealand does community really well. You know, we're in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak. And at the time of talking to you, Jacinda Ardern has just told the country we're going to be in lockdown for a further week. Yeah, literally three hours ago. Like three hours ago. And 
New Zealanders are really good at pulling together, I think, after earthquakes, after pandemics, after whatever. So I think that that glue is very musical theatre, you know, and I think that there are ways of telling stories about about community. And then obviously you connect that to Māori culture, Pacifica culture, that sense of our history of whānau and waiata and that idea of being a collective and singing is really powerful for me. But also mm. New Zealand is a country of underdogs, and that's what Kate Shepherd was. That's what the suffragist movement was about. It was about an underdog. And I think in New Zealand, we love the underdog. So I think that's why, for me, the Kate Shepherd story sang. That's why it had to be a musical. It was because it was about someone who was at the extreme, fighting for this fundamental human rise that no one else in the world had at that point being granted. And so New Zealand leading the world and fighting for a basic human right, that was the heightened aspirational thing that sang for me, which meant it had to be a musical. In a musical, we sing when we're out of words. The challenge for New Zealand subjects is where do we find those stories where people are out of words? I'm really passionate about the New Zealand Musical Theatre Voice. There are a bunch of us who are beginning to write musical theatre stories about New Zealand, and it's exciting to be beginning to work out what we sound like and how we can fit into the sort of global musical theatre canon. Totally. Before we wrap up, this podcast is called Broadway and Other Kiwi Dreams, and that is, you know, because of my passion of working as an actor. I was wondering, what is your Kiwi dream? Obviously, you're working at Federation Uni in Melbourne at the moment, so there's that teaching side of things, but yeah. It's funny you ask that. I mean, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, it would have been, I want to be the first New Zealander to get a show on Broadway. That's what I went to New York to try and do. And look, that certainly is an aspiration that who wouldn't want that to happen. But I think for me, my dream is just to keep writing and keep getting stuff produced. Because at the end of the day, whether your ambition is Broadway or Hollywood or the West End, that's a combination of timing and luck and the right people in the right moment. And the chances of someone like me getting a show on Broadway on paper are like 2% of that. So rather than being sort of particularly goal-orientated, I'm now more project-orientated, and then I'll see where things lead. But I think my Kiwi dream, to be honest to your podcast, James, which I think is such an amazing way of looking at things, because I think that there is a a stigma about being aspirational and having a dream to do certain things in New Mm -hmm. Zealand. My dream is to just be a working music theatre writer. And whether my shows are on in New Zealand or Australia or, you know, the UK or New York, it's a privilege to be writing musicals. As long as I'm true to what I want to say and how I want to communicate, then hopefully things still get produced and get put on. The really key thing is, the thing I've learned, I'm 35 now, so I'm beginning to get sort of old. (laughs) You cannot manufacture success. It just is about hard work and luck. And the harder you work, the luckier you get. And the more people you meet, the luckier you get. And the more opportunities you say yes to, the luckier you get. And as long as you're putting one foot in front of the other and doing good work and being true to yourself, then the rest of it is just up to the universe to make happen. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Luke, and for opening up and giving us your wisdom. Of course, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. And thanks to everyone else for listening. And we'll talk at you next week with another guest. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed finding out more about Luke and gleaned the message of being kind and putting yourself out there. You can find Luke on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Luke DeSoma. That's at L-U-K-E-D-I-S-O-M-M-A. Again, if you did like this episode, please share it with a friend. Let's create a community together. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as our website. All of those links are in the description. Join me next week as I talk to a mother of three from South Africa who loves to isolate from isolation on Broadway and other Kiwi dreams.